Or we certainly don't like stuff that scares us a lot. But if we're honest, we're motivated by fear a lot. We're motivated by fear in in a lot of different aspects of life. Because we fear gaining weight, maybe, we're motivated to stay away from ice cream and eat something gross like cabbage instead, right? We're motivated by fear in lots of ways. And because we're afraid of failure, we work really hard, whether it's to to play in a game or to, 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 to study for a test. We don't want to fail, and so we're scared of failing and we work really hard. Our fear of injury in a car accident causes us to put on a seat belt, right? Fear motivates us in a lot of different ways. But today, we're going to talk about something that is scary, is fearful. Jesus, that's why I love just going through a book of the Bible, because I don't want you to just hear my opinion on stuff. I want us to to hear what God wants us to hear. And sometimes God wants us to hear things that we probably don't want to hear. That's why it's so good to just be going through God's Word. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and now we're going to get to chapter 9, verses 42 to 50, and Jesus is going to talk about sin and hell and holiness. Not exactly pick-me-up kind of message that Jesus has for His disciples But I think we need to hear it. He knew they needed to hear it. He knows that we need to hear it. I've been saying really since since the beginning of my time being the pastor here that one of the things I keep repeating is that I want us to be a church that's motivated by God's glory. That because we see how magnificent God is, that that motivates how we serve one another, how we love one another, how we care for other people, how we worship. And I think that's true. That ought to be our ultimate motivation. But sometimes God seeks to motivate us by fear as well. And so what we're going to see here today is we're going to see Jesus commanding His disciples to be holy. To take their sin seriously. And He's going to do it by talking to them about something we don't like hearing about. And that is the reality of hell. Jesus actually talks more about hell than he does about heaven. And we're going to look at what he says a bit about hell in this message today. And so, if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50 is where we're going to be today. If you're able to, let's stand as we read God's Word. I'm confident, we can be confident that this is God's Word. The things that I say, I might say something that's not quite right today. Something that's maybe a little bit skewed, a little bit off, but God's Word is never never a little bit skewed or a little bit off. And so, let's hear God's Word from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt 
has lost its saltiness, how you make it salty again. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You can be seated. There is in your bulletin, this might be helpful for you to follow along, a, uh, a spot for sermon notes. Um, actually going to flip that around a little bit. That last point, be holy, is going to be the first point. Normally, you, if you've been here a lot, you know that I just walk through a passage verse by verse. We're going to hit every verse today, but because of the way that the passage is written, it's going to be a little more helpful to pull out the main ideas and kind of go through it in that way. And so we're going to be hopping around a little bit more than normal this morning within the passage, but we're going to hit every verse. Speaking of hitting every verse, though, I just got to point this out before we get there, because you might have been confused even as I just read that passage. I read that passage, and maybe in the Bible that you were holding in front of you, you're like, hey, he just skipped verses 44 and 46. Or maybe in your Bible, there isn't a verse 44 and 46. Did you notice that? If you have the ESV or the NIV, or maybe another modern translation, verses 44 and 46 aren't even in there. You might be thinking, well, that's kind of weird. And maybe you have a, have a, a Bible where those verses are in there but there may be in parentheses or maybe in italics, and there's a little footnote. Just a quick description. I don't want to get too technical. Um, but the Bible, the New Testament, was originally written in a different language. It was written in Greek. Okay, And so the English translations that we have are based off of old manuscripts. Well, some of our older translations were based off of manuscripts that we had available at the time. So like the old King James Version... That'll have verses 44 and 46 in it because the manuscripts that they had available at the time had verses 44 and 46 in it. But we have discovered since then that, that there are some older manuscripts. And the older manuscripts, they're the more reliable ones because as stuff got copied over time, the later manuscripts had often mistakes in them or maybe something got added. But the earlier manuscripts are more reliable and the earlier manuscripts do not include verses 44 and 46. And so that's why they're not included in many modern translations. Or if they are included, they're in parentheses with a footnote. Now, it's not a huge deal either way, because verse 48 that we have in every Bible is the same thing as verses 44 and 46. Okay, So verse 48, verse 44, verse 46, they all say the exact, exact same thing. So whether Jesus said it one time, which we can be confident of, or he said it three times, which we can be less confident of, it doesn't matter. Jesus only has to say it one time for it to be true, right? So, anyway, that's why, just a quick explanation, you want to talk more about that, I can give you more detail, but that's why some of you are like, hey, where, what happened to verses 44 and 46? But, we're going to actually start at the end of this passage today. We're going to start at the end because the end of this passage doesn't seem to be all that connected to the beginning of the passage, and it's really kind of confusing. Verse 49, some people will say that verse 49 is the hardest verse to understand in the Gospel of Mark. So, uh, here we go. Verse 49, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But verse 49, we're going to see Jesus, this first point you'll see, well, it's the last point in your outline, but I'm doing it first. The first point is this, we're called to be holy. We're called to be holy. We've been singing a lot of songs this morning about the fact that God is holy, that God is totally without sin. Never has or never will do anything 
wrong. God is perfect. And the truth about us is that we're not. We're not holy. But God calls us to be holy. And so we're going to look at what holiness looks like in these passages. Verse 49 says this, if you didn't catch it. It said, For everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world does that even mean? Everyone will be salted with fire. That's that's confusing. It doesn't matter how many years you went to seminary and how many thick books you've read. Verse 49 is just hard to understand. It's the only, only, the only gospel is Mark's gospel that includes Jesus teaching this sentence. For everyone will be salted with fire. The best understanding that we can come to as far as what this is about, if you looked in the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, verse 13, there's this connection between salt and fire that we see there. And then we hear of fire, most of the time when we hear of fire in the New Testament, it's talking about the fact that fire comes to purify us. That those of us who are disciples of Jesus, part of the way in which we become more holy, part of the way in which our sin is kind of burned away and we become more holy, is that God brings about the fires of trials. Okay, That we go through really hard things, fiery Suffering comes upon us so that we might be purified and become more holy. And that offering is to, meant to be this pleasing aroma to God. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And God seeks to make us that way, sometimes through the fiery trials of suffering. That's about the best that we can do with verse 49. And then in verse 50, that's easier to understand. In verse 50, it says this, Salt is good. And a lot of people say, Amen. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus is talking to these disciples who we looked at last week. Remember, they needed to hear this message, that they're supposed to be at peace with each other, and they're supposed to be salt, because last week, we went over the fact that just after Jesus told them, I'm going to die and rise again, what was their response? Their response was, hey, I'm better than you. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And then they were trying to exclude this other guy who was doing stuff in the name of Jesus. They were saying, "Uh uh-uh, you're not just like us, so you can't do it. They were fighting amongst themselves, and Jesus tells them now, hey, you're supposed to be salt in the world. And salt at that time, they didn't have refrigerators, so salt is what was used to preserve meat. So Jesus is saying to them, hey, in this rotting and dying world, you're supposed to be the salt. You're supposed to live at peace with each other and be the salt, and right now you're not doing a very good job of that. Jesus calls his disciples to be holy, and they weren't being very holy. We could ask ourselves that, are we ready to be purified by fire, by by suffering, so that we might become better life preservers in this world that we live in? But I want to focus, really, if we're talking about God's calling us to be holy, one of the ways that we become holy is when we see sin, we call it sin, and we recognize it as sin. We take our sin seriously. So, that's what we're going to see in the beginning of this passage. I want you to go back to Mark chapter 9, verse 42. 
Now, Jesus is going to say some things, just kind of a, a disclaimer here, so people don't go and start cutting stuff off after church today. Like, we're not doing that. We're not going to like, hey, have pizza and then cut your hand off after church. That's not, that's not the plan. Jesus is using something that's called hyperbole here, okay? Hyperbole is this device used in literature and in speaking in which you intentionally exaggerate something to make a point, okay? Like, like when we say something like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Like you're not actually going to go eat a horse, right? You're just trying to make the point that I'm really, really hungry, okay? Jesus is going to say some things here that aren't intended to be taken literally. But he's trying to make a point. He's, he's trying so hard to make the point that he's going to really repeat himself over and over again, just using different body parts. Okay? And so, let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 42. He says this. This is really kind of what ties this in with the passage we looked at last week. Whoever causes one of these little ones... And the word there for little ones is, is not the same as a child that we saw earlier. So he's not talking about just kids. He's talking about other believers, younger believers, okay? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, and a millstone was a stone that was used to grind grain, but a human couldn't even uh, move these great millstones. This would have to be attached to an animal, and they would move this stone around as it crushed the grains, right? Jesus said, if you're going to be one of those believers that causes other people to sin, puts a stumbling block in front of other people, it would be better for you to have one of those things tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea to drown. Jesus is saying, you causing other people to sin, that's something that we ought to take very seriously, Application for us would be, this is really in line with what we looked at last week and talked about, that, that if in the way that we interact with each other as believers, we're causing other people to sin and to stumble. Other people are not hearing the gospel because we're too focused on arguing with each other about who's the best. Or, or we're so focused on whether we're better than other people or something like that, that the gospel gets missed. It would be better, it says, for us to have a great millstone tied around our neck and for us to be thrown into the sea than to cause other people to sin. So we need to examine our hearts. Are there ways, Christian, in which the way that you're living your life is causing other people to sin? Don't brush that off as not a big deal. Jesus is saying here that that's a very serious matter. Now, most of the focus, though, here that Jesus has is on our own sin, not on the fact that we cause other people to sin, but here's where we get a little bit of personal accountability. Jesus is focusing in on our own sin, and he's telling us that our own sin is very serious. How serious, you say? Look at verse 43. How serious is our sin? Jesus says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Whew, that's pretty serious. He's saying if your hand causes you to sin, he doesn't say, well, just try harder next time. It's not really that big of a deal. I mean, everybody sins. Nobody's perfect, right? That's not Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Do we ever sin with our hands? Yeah. 
Anybody who steals is sinning with their hands, right? That's, that's a way that we sin with our hands. We, a lot of times, one of the first commandments is that we would not make for ourselves any idols. Do we use our hands to grip on to things that really have become idols for us? Yes. For some, a golf club becomes an idol that you use your hands to grip on to. For some, whatever's in your wallet, your money, becomes your idol. And we use our hands to just grab on to that idol. Well, maybe, maybe for you it's, it's your technology or maybe it's whatever it is. There's all sorts of idols that we can create in, in our steering wheel, right? And, and hold on to that. Like that's going to guide us. Jesus says, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. That's how serious it is, and so we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing that we ought not to be doing? Are we using our hands in some way? Just think about this. Are you using your hands in some way that is not honoring to God? It's serious, Jesus says. Then in verse 45, he talks about another body part. He says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Are there places that your feet take you that you ought not to be? Are there places that your feet take you that let you get there and you're wondering, like, what am I doing here? I don't, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. With all the stuff that's going on in this place, this is not where I ought to be. Where are you going that you ought not to be going? In what ways are you using your feet in ways that don't honor God? And in verse 47, he's got one more. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Do our eyes ever lead us into sin? Oh yeah, they do. The final commandment of God's Ten Commandments is that we shall not covet. Do our eyes covet things? Yeah. We see what other people have, and we just long for it. Whether it's the clothes that other people are wearing, the cars that other people are driving, the abilities and the talents and the gifts that other people have, the looks that other like we covet all the time. Our eyes cause us to sin. Lust is another way in which our eyes cause us to sin. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? Do our eyes cause us to lust? Do we look at things that we ought not to be looking at? Yes. We need to ask ourselves, in what ways do our eyes cause us to sin? Do our eyes cause us to do things that are not honoring to God? Now, God, Jesus could have kept going on here. He could have talked about our tongue, right? How many times does our own tongue get us in trouble? Do we sin with the way that we talk about ourselves or the way that we talk about other people? Gossip, all sorts of other, like, he could have done that. The book of James highlights that. Listen to what the book of James says about our tongue. Listen to this. Book of James says, A fire, it's a world of unrighteousness that stains the whole body and sets on fire the entire course of life. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. Right? We're, we're singing worship songs, like we ri- and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Listen. There are a lot of different ways that we can sin. Even if you were to take your hand and cut it off, 
you would find a way to sin with your feet. Even if you were to take your feet and cut them up. There's so many ways to sin. That's our problem, isn't it? So what ought we to do with our sin? In light of what Jesus says, he doesn't mean literally, again, go home, cut off your hand, cut off your feet, gouge out your eyes, and you're good to go. That's not Jesus' message. Jesus' message is take your sin seriously. But here's our problem. Listen, our problem, we don't take sin very seriously. We don't. Here's what we do naturally with our sin. With our sin, what we naturally do is we ignore it. We just kind of, we get so focused on other people's sin, all the stuff that they're involved in, all the stuff that they ought not to be doing, that we forget and don't take very seriously at all our own sin. I've read this book, not all the way through, but it's really good. It's a book called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. That's another thing we do with sin. We tolerate it. We, we kind of look at it like, well, I, I mean, I know I struggle with worry and anxiety and stuff, but I mean, like, everybody in my family, is, it's, just like, it's just who I am. We just tolerate it. Like, it's okay. It's, I mean, like, well, I mean, like I, like, I know I was, but like every guy would look at a girl, right? I mean, right? Come on. We just, we tolerate sin. And we seek to justify our sin. In our own mind, we're like, well, I responded in that way to her because of what she said about me, right? And so we just, well, that's why I sinned. And so my sin's okay because they started it or, you know, something ridiculous like that. So naturally, with our sin, we ignore it, we justify it, we tolerate it. We do all sorts of things with our sin. But what ought we to do with our sin? Jesus says to take sin seriously. So what should be our approach to our sin? We shouldn't tolerate it. We shouldn't justify it. We shouldn't ignore it. We ought to fight it. We ought to kill it. I I remember one time, this is what I think Annika was our only child at that point, uh, when we lived in South Dakota, and we had, I can't even remember what kind of rodent it was, that was living in our backyard. and, and And she didn't like it. We didn't like it. It was scary. And so we had this thing kind of trapped at one point. And our Annika, if you know her, just extremely sweet, kind-hearted, sensitive little girl, only says sweet things almost all the time, right? We've got this little rodent running around, and uh, we finally got it trapped. And our little daughter, her response was not, Oh, Mommy, that's so cute. Can we keep it as a pet? Our sweet little girl's response was, kill it! Kill it! Right? That was her response because it was a rodent. It wasn't cute. It wasn't supposed to be a pet. It was supposed to be put to death. That's the attitude that our daughter had. And that's the way we need to see our sin. That when we see our sin, we can't be like, oh, well, I mean, I mean, come on, everybody. It's not that big of a deal. At least I'm not blah, 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 or whatever. It's kind of cute. Like, we don't coddle our sin. We don't invite the sin into our house and say, hey, you can hang out with us and I will feed you some little gerbil food. No. When we see sin in our lives, our response ought to be like little Annika's response to that little rodent in the backyard saying, kill it! I don't want that! Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says, 
there's a couple ways to live, and they're laid out really clearly here in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. One verse, here's what it says. For if you live according to the flesh, this is way number one to live, living according to the flesh. Okay, this is doing what you want to do. This is you saying, God is a joke, and I am my own God, and I will do what I want to do. Nobody else is going to tell me what to do. That's living according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, what's the result? You will die. But, here's the other way, way number two. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The other way to live is to, instead of feeding the flesh and doing whatever you want to do, is to say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm no longer going to be in slavery to sin. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, He set me free from slavery to sin. I'm not a slave anymore, and so I'm going to let the Spirit come and put to death sin in my life. I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to allow it to be put to death by the Spirit kill it. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. If you want to turn there you can really quickly. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 gives us another clue as to how we ought to respond to sin. It says there this, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions and evil desires, covetousness which is idolatry. Now we read in Colossians, that our attitude towards sin ought to be serious. That when we see sin, we don't just shrug our shoulders at it. When we see sin, we put it to death. We flee from it. But here's the problem. That's not what we want to do. Right? That's not what we want to do. And so sometimes we need to be reminded of the consequences of our disobedience, the consequences of our sin. We have to do that all the time as parents with our kids. We have to remind them that there's consequences to their behavior. That's what Jesus is doing for his disciples here in this passage. He's saying, listen, your sin is serious. It's not something to be shrugged off or laughed about. In light of how holy and perfect I am, You need to take your sins seriously because there are consequences for sin. And the consequence for sin is serious. And it is real. And it's hell. Look at it here in these verses. We don't like to talk about hell in our culture. Just like we like to not talk about sin, we don't like to talk about hell. Instead of talking about sin, we like to talk about love and tolerance in our culture. Instead of talking about hell, we like to talk a lot about heaven. And we assume that pretty much everybody, because they're trying pretty hard and they're pretty decent people, pretty much everybody is going to heaven, especially people that we love. We just assume that their natural spot that they're going is heaven. If they die, they're going to be in heaven. We get these weird ideas about like they become angels or something. I don't like no. That's not the, the picture that we get in scripture. The picture we get in Scripture is not that everybody naturally is going to heaven unless they become really evil. The picture we get in Scripture is that all of us are evil and headed to hell unless we are rescued by a Savior. Hell is real. It's not just some some cute little thing. We, We use it so flippantly, don't we? 
We use the word hell so flippantly. We just kind of toss it around. We even say things like, oh, that was like a day from hell if we have a bad day. Are you serious? Do you even know what you're saying when you say that? However bad your day was, it is not a day from hell. Even when we say things like, war is hell. We've heard that. Listen, I haven't been in war, and the stories that I've heard are horrendous. And I don't doubt for one minute that war is a horrible, horrible thing. But compared to the reality of hell, war is not hell. Hell is hell. And what is hell like? Jesus gives us a little glimpse here in this passage. At the end of verse 43, Jesus says, It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, he says, it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. In verse 47, he says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. In verse 48, it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is real. Jesus talks about it. The word that he uses here is the word Gehenna. It's important to know just because Jesus is trying to describe to his disciples what hell is like. I don't know what your perception of hell is that you have in your mind, but when Jesus said this word to them, Gehenna, Gehenna was a real place. Okay, Gehenna previously was a place where people would go and actually, listen, this is how horrible this place was, people would go and sacrifice other human beings to a false god at this place called Gehenna. Okay? They would go, in the, but when King Josiah came to power, he desecrated that place by making that place a garbage dump. And so for many years, this place had been a garbage dump where people would bring all of their trash from the city of Jerusalem. Their trash would be brought out to this heaping pile. Their trash, including animal corpses and even human corpses, brought out into this heaping pile, and in order to keep it from getting too high, it would be always burning. Imagine the horrible stench and the incessant, unquenchable fire that consistently burned for years in this place called Gehenna. That was the best description that Jesus could come up with to the reality of hell. Just like we have a hard time describing heaven, and so we have to come up with all these different pictures, they have a hard time describing how horrible hell is. And so all these pictures, the best thing they could come up with is talking about this, this heaping trash dump with a horrible stench whose fire just kept going over and over again. And in verse 48, when Jesus says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, he's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah 700 years before this. The last verse in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 24, talks about this. place where the worm doesn't die because there's always something to devour and the fire is not quenched. Hell is not a place of quick, quick punishment that's over in a moment. Hell is a place of eternal torment. means torment that goes on, punishment that goes on forever. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that God is the judge, and when He comes again, He's going to come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
We take our sin seriously because hell is real. Why should hell concern us? Here's where kind of the rubber meets the road, and I want you to hear this. Why should hell concern us? Because it's real. And it is the default destination for all who live. That, that, that our life, because God is holy and because we come into this world sinful in rebellion against God, we want to be our own God. We want to do what we want to do. We do things that we know are wrong, and we know they're wrong, but we do them anyway. We do things that we don't even know are wrong, but we do them. Our sin is both willful and unwillful sometimes. We don't even know that we're doing it. And because of our sin, God's just punishment on us, because He is holy, He is perfect, and He must, because He's a perfect God, punish sin. He wouldn't be a good God if He didn't punish evil. And all of us are evil and deserving of eternal punishment from God in hell. And I fear that some of you think that you're getting out of it somehow because you've jumped through some hoop at some point, sometime. That maybe you went through a class one time and you got done and you wore a robe and ate some cake. And so now you're not going to hell. Or that you one time got dunked in water or had water sprinkled on you and now you no longer are going to hell because of something that you have done. Or because you're here this morning, right? And there's a lot of other people out there that are a lot worse than you, and they're not in church, so they're the ones going to hell, and you're trying hard to be good, so you're going to be in heaven. But the reality is, you can't save yourself. You can't get out of this punishment that you deserve because you do something on your own. The reality is, there's only one way to get out. There are some people in this church this morning that are headed to hell and there are some people in this church that are headed to heaven you know what the difference is the difference is not that there are some people that are doing a little bit better at being good than other people and the people that are doing a little bit better at being good are going to heaven and the little people that aren't doing very well at being good they're going to hell that's not the difference the difference between those that are going to heaven when they die and those that are going to hell when they die is that those that are going to heaven have recognized that their sin is serious. That there really is a God who really does deserve all of our worship and all of our life and who recognize that we have not given that to Him. But instead, we are living to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, with whomever we want to do it with. That we've recognized that and we've been broken about our sin, recognizing that our sin brings us a rightful and just consequence from a holy God that we deserve to be punished. It's not unfair for God to punish us in hell. That is not unfair. We recognize that. I recognize that about me. I know my own heart. I know that that would be a just punishment for me for my sin. And The reason I have hope that I'm going to be in heaven when I die and not be in hell is not because I've tried a lot harder than other people and now I'm a pastor. The only reason for the hope that I have is the fact that God has done something. That God has sent His one and only Son, Jesus. And the reason that He came was not just to do some miracles and to teach people some really good things about being nice to each other. The reason that God sent His Son, Jesus, the Christ, 
is He sent Him so that He might take my place on the cross, that He might die, that He might spread His arms open so that the punishment that I deserved gets poured out on Him instead of me. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. I'm not going to, I'm not going to earn it by cutting off my hand. I can't, I can't make my sin go away on my own. The only way for me to make my sin go away, the only way for me to be forgiven, the only way for me to be made right with God is for me to trust in Jesus and what He's done for me. To confess Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. That's the only way that you escape the just punishment that you deserve in hell. You need to hear that message this morning. You have questions about that? You want to talk more? You kind of maybe have been laughing God off, laughing off your own sin like it's really not a big deal, that you're just living because, you know, you only live once. But like one of the rappers I listen to says, you only live once, but you can die twice. Right? There's consequences for the way that we live. Hell is real. Our sin is serious. For those of us that that are Christians, we need to remember this because this ought to motivate us, motivate us towards holiness and motivate us to preach the gospel to people who haven't heard. How lazy are we? How selfish are we if we know that those who have not heard the gospel and responded with faith in Jesus, if they don't hear the gospel and respond to it, they're going to hell. And we're scared that they might laugh at us if we tell them about that. How selfish are we? We're going we're gonna to have communion together. We do this once a month as a church. It's a time that we take pretty seriously. And the reason we take it so seriously is because we take our holy God very seriously. We take the sacrifice of Jesus and what He did for us very seriously. We take our own sin very seriously. So I want us to keep in mind two things this morning as we come to the communion table. Communion's not for everybody, by the way. Those of you that are believers, those of you that have recognized that Jesus is Lord and Savior and you've turned yourself to Him, then you're welcome to participate with us. You don't have to be a member of our church. But if you're, if you're not a believer, if you haven't confessed Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then when the stuff comes by, you just pass it to the next person. It's not a big deal for you to pass that up. But it is a big deal for you to take it if you're not a believer. And so don't take it if you're not a believer. But I want us to keep two things heavy on our minds as we come to communion together this morning. I want us to remember that, that we're not holy. I want us to remember these two things. John Newton, he was, uh, you, you know the hymn Amazing Grace? He's the one that wrote that. John Newton, earlier in his life, before he came to Christ, was a slave trader. That's a horrible thing to be. He was, he was a slave trader, and he recognized later in his life when he came to faith in Christ that that was sinful. That's why he said, that saved a wretch like me in that song, Amazing Grace. He knew what a mess that he was. And as he got older and was looking back on his life, here's what he said. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but these two things I remember. He forgot a lot of stuff when he got old. But he said, these two things I remember, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. 
That's what I want us to remember as we come to communion this morning. That we who are Christians remember that we are a great sinner. We need to sit in that and feel the heaviness of that. Because our sin is serious. But that our hope in that is that we also know Christ who is a great Savior. Paul said something similar in his letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the chief. I'm the captain of that team, Paul says. You want to talk about sinful people? I'm going to heaven, but it's not because I'm not a sinner. It's because I was the captain of the sin team at one point. My only hope, though, is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so that's our hope. As we come to communion together today, let's remember those two things.